This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast, friends. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and I'm so glad you're here, especially if you're a first-time listener. Hey, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a new few listeners today because my guest has a strong following thanks to her outspoken opinions on everything from guns to babies to vaccines, which we will get into a bit today. And she's also been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, among many others, all the while doing this while being a stay-at-home mom to three kids. And surprise, she just had her fourth baby last week, or around then, after we recorded this episode. Bethany always tells it like it is and doesn't apologize for standing strong in her beliefs. Also, she had her third baby in a car on the side of the road, and we'll talk about that story a bit today, too. I'm so thankful for this friend of mine of 10 years. Enjoy this conversation with Bethany Mandel. Okay, Bethany, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, what are you up to today? Oh, you know, the usual food shopping and cooking never ends. How do you do your food (laughs) shopping? Do you go or do you get it online? So I go because I'm a control freak, but I, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you, but I am, I opened my pregnancy app to confirm. I am almost 35 weeks pregnant Uh and I've decided um, to limit my food shopping at so I I feel like I'm gonna go into labor every time I go into Costco (laughs) because I'm like pushing this giant cart and the store is so big so I decided today is my last Costco run until I have a baby because I don't want to have a baby in Costco no no that Um, would add to your infamous stories yes yes so wait do you normally go early or are you on time person I'm an on time slash tiny bit late person Uh uh-huh um, so if I go today at 35 weeks, I probably won't need another Costco run until like 38 weeks, uh-huh. but I'm not going at 38 <laughs> weeks. So I will Instacart that 38 week trip to Okay. Costco. So you'll do the Instacart in necessary situations. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to do probably Instacart the last like two weeks Okay, everywhere, but this is going to be my last, I only do Costco once every three weeks or so. And this is going to be my last Costco run until I have a baby. Cause I just can't, I so can't do, you, do it. Do you guys live in the suburbs? We do. Yeah. Okay. What part? Alexandria? No, we live in Maryland um, oh, in okay. summer spring. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So for everyone that's listening, if you don't know, uh, this is Bethany. She is pregnant with her fourth baby. And how old are your other kids? Five, four, and two. Okay, so you're going to have a lot going on here pretty soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah. so I Bethany, can't imagine it's that much more than I already have. Well, that's stuff. true. My well, <laughs> although my sister did say she has four, um, and hers are six, four, two, and nine months. Oh, okay. <laughs> so about so the same. same. Yeah, pretty much the same. She she didn't say it was that much different, but like it is like at first she said it was just like a tad overwhelming. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, every new baby is overwhelming, but I I'm starting to feel really dizzy all the time. And so I just like to be able to stand upright, I feel like will add to my productivity levels a great deal. <laughs> yeah. So you 
let's um, let's give you a little bit more of an introduction here. You are obviously a mom. You're a freelance writer. That's another thing that you do. Um, you just recently moved from the. You were living in New Jersey, right? Yeah, New thank Jersey. God. You hated New Jersey. Everybody that listens to you knows that you hate it. <laughs> and <laughs> you're now in the DC area. But I was just looking at our Twitter history, and I noticed that our first Twitter DM to one another was nine years ago. So that's pretty crazy. Oh my god. That's I know, so crazy. and I think I knew you before that because, yeah, like we had just—I don't even know how we met. Probably on Twitter, yeah, yeah, because sure, you sure. had the the direct message that I saw was you saying like, "Hey, I'm moving to DC and I'm looking for jobs. Do you have any tips?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, well, she did eventually find her way." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something that I did when I moved. I sort of just like reached out to all of my my networks online and that was how I got my first job at the Heritage Foundation was via a Twitter contact yeah um who followed me and he posted like oh we're hiring for this position and I DM'd him and I was like hey I'm not gonna apply so and from yeah, yeah so from Heritage to to writing now um you write about a lot of really controversial things for example recently the New York Times you wrote about um, vaccines and people, yeah. and you, you are pro vaccine. Um, but you wrote about some of the, you know, risks of people that are not doing that or that are anti-vax. Um, what makes you passionate about writing about like really controversial stuff? So I've been writing and talking about vaccines for an actual, for so long that the first time I pitched a piece to an editor, he was like, no one cares about if people vaccinate their children. And I was like, oh my that, is, that is not accurate. When, when was that? Oh, gosh. It was probably six years ago. Okay. And, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. And that was, like, that was like right sort of at the cusp of the anti-vax movement going more mainstream and people mm-hmm. noticing it. Um, but I had noticed it sort of in new mom circles because – people were talking about it online. And I, I've lived in a, I've lived in the third world. I lived in Cambodia for, um, for a year. And I saw several of these diseases in person. I saw the measles in person. I saw the mumps in person and they're terrifying and they're awful. And I saw moms lining up in the blazing hot tropical sun to get their kids vaccines because they knew how valuable they were and they knew what would happen if they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and mandatory, I mean, childhood vaccines like we have here do not really exist there. They're not mandatory by any means. They're not readily accessible by any means. They have clinics that people line up for, and they're they're too infrequent there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started writing about it probably like six or seven years ago um, when I first started seeing anti-vaccine sentiment in new mom groups, and it horrified me and and infuriated me. Um, it's just that timeline makes sense to me because, um, in terms of what that editor said to you, because someone that's close to me, um, is someone that does not vaccinate their children. And we've talked about this before. Um, I am pro vax, but she told me that when she first, um, when she had her first child, she's three, um, and she came out and basically said on Facebook, like that she wasn't going to vaccinate. She said, no one cared. And that now she does not tell people because of the backlash that she'll get about it. Um, And and because she was just saying that before no one was paying attention and people have started to pay attention in a really 
um, much more, um, you know, visible way. What do you think has changed that made that happen? Uh, all of these diseases are starting to come back. I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing the biggest measles outbreak since the supposed erad- like near eradication 20 years ago. This is the highest number of measles cases in a, in a year, like not in a calendar, in a calendar year, not in a 12 month span. And we're only in May. Uh, and we, we surpassed, right? It's May. I don't even know. Yeah. It's <laughs> May. It's, it's the, almost <laughs> the end of May. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've, we've seen more measles cases this year and we're not even halfway through the year. So it's, it's really become, um, it's really become a story because they're seeing massive measles outbreaks in the Philippines. They're seeing a measles outbreak that has affected, I think, like 30,000 kids and f- over 500 kids have died in the measles. And, and that's because of um, sort of vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. in the Philippines that, that, that the measles has been able to sort of spread that fast. But the measles is a particularly scary disease because um, let's say I have the measles or actually the better example would be if my kid has the measles. I, if my kid comes down with the measles, the first place I'm going to bring them is probably their doctor. And if they're sitting in the waiting room, they have their, it's so airborne and it's so contagious that a, a newborn who came into the waiting room two hours later could catch the measles from mm. my kid who isn't even present anymore. That's crazy. It's terrifying. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, there's, there's only so many things you can do, but one of the biggest things is to only go to a pediatrician who accepts vaccinating patients only. Mm-hmm. Um, because the chances of, I mean, there's still chance of a kid who maybe is too young to get a shot or maybe only had the first shot. And so they only have partial immunity, but the, your chances of catching the measles in that waiting room are much lower if, if your pediatrician. Yeah. Is, and I guess that makes it that much more scary as the mom of a newborn, um, mm-hmm. to be going out in public because I know a lot of people, I don't know how you are with your newborns, but a lot of people, you know, kind of stay in for the no, first that's bit. Not me. I am not <laughs> like that at all. I am like day two. I'm out at the store with my baby. Yep. Like that's how I yep, am. I'm the same way. But I think if I had another one now that I would be thinking a little bit more about that. Are you thinking about that now? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that, that was basically the premise of, of that New York times piece was that I, I think that what we're probably going to end up doing, she's due July 1st. My guess is for the next six months after that, year after that, depending on when I get her the first shot and how much immunity that confers and, and, and how sort of resilient she seems, some kids are more resilient than others, um, I, we're going to severely limit um, our exposure to other homeschool groups and co-ops and classes because uh, anti-vaccine sentiment is rife in homeschool circles mm-hmm. um and we will probably also and I, I i hesitate to say this because i don't know how to say it without sounding anti-semitic despite the fact that i'm jewish but we're going to limit our exposure to the jewish community as well because there is a very small but unfortunately um a small percentage but a large when you look at the numbers of people who are vaccine hesitant in the, in the Orthodox community. Mm-hmm. And because of them, babies have, have become infected. And um, there's been a lot of exposure within the Jewish community. 
so recently in Baltimore, which is not that far away from us, it's about 45 minutes, um, a baby who was too young for the vaccine, um, and this is the other scary thing about the measles, you're contagious for up to two weeks without necessarily knowing that you even have the measles. So a baby mm. got the measles who he's from a, a family that everybody vaccinates. His, his father was a rabbi, but he was too young for the shot and he got the measles and he exposed uh, basically every kosher supermarket in Baltimore. Oh my gosh. For um, before Passover, which is like the biggest shopping sort of, it's like Thanksgiving really for Jews. And so he exposed two kosher supermarkets. One of them is the biggest kosher supermarket in the country. And uh, the third the third spot of exposure was his pediatrician office. So um, this is this is happening a lot in the Jewish community. And so I, my husband and I are, have sort of been talking about it. And we're like, I think we're not going to go to like synagogue or to or to the kosher supermarkets until after this baby has her first shots, at least. Yeah. Um, because it's been a point of exposure for us locally here. And and are you hearing, I mean, I know what I hear is kind of like people don't trust the pharmaceutical companies and nobody knows what's going to happen. Are those the kind of arguments you're hearing against it? Are you hearing still the autism argument as well? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot. People say it's too much too soon. We don't know necessarily what the result is. We're hearing a lot of the autism stuff um, and people don't trust pharmaceutical companies. And quite honestly, on the pharmaceutical company's front, they're not wrong. <laughs> right. That's what I thought too. I'm like, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be skeptical of when it comes yeah, to them. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've had enough research done by enough independent scientists across the world. There was a, a massive study that just happened in the Netherlands that actually funnily enough, uh, showed that kids who were not vaccinated were at a slightly increased risk of autism. Oh my um, so the opposite of what Andrew Wakefield recommended but mm -hmm. um the sort of the the margin of error was was could pretty much explain most of that but also i i think that if i think there's a genetic component to autism and so if there was a kid in the family who developed autism and the parents um were scared about a subsequent child developing autism they may have held off on the vaccines thinking there might have been a connection and then that second kid ended up having autism anyway because they're going to have autism anyway because it's mm -hmm. not it's not conferred by right. uh, vaccines. It's it has a heavy genetic component, um, so that could explain also the sort of reason why uh, there's no necessary necessary uh, correlation between vaccines and autism. But um, but it was just sort of a funny coincidence yeah. that the the kids who were not vaccinated had a higher uh, risk of autism. Well, let's talk about babies for a second. Um, you, like I said, you've got three, you got one on the way and you've done all natural births. Is that right? I have, but it feels a little bit like a cop out to say that because my second and my third were so fast that even if I wanted to have an episode, you couldn't have, I, I couldn't have. So I mean, I, in my three labors combined, I was in labor less than 12 hours. Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. So. <laughs> that's insane. So, a little bit. Okay, so I, I 
I assume that you you chose not to get vaccinated and you weren't or not vaccinated. <laughs> now I'm like <laughs> mixing epidural. It's a shot. It's all the same. Yeah, um, yeah. You chose not to have an epidural. You weren't planning to, at least um, for any of them. Um, and I'm always so fascinated by that because I am such an epidural person. Like I am like I refuse to be in pain. Um, but I also know that there is such a I've heard so many wonderful things about having a natural birth experience. Um, I know you've had some really interesting ones, but in general, what, what's your, you know, how would you describe a natural birth and how that feels like that, that high that you get, um, that I've heard about. So you are a person who exercises. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it similar to the runner's high. I have never experienced such, (laughs) such a high. Um, so for me, the, the first, for the first birth, which was by far the longest, I, um, my water broke. I mean, you obviously don't know what, how your birth is going to go until your birth goes, but, and I was planning on having a natural birth, but, um, my first birth was eight hours long and was a pretty intense eight hours. My contractions were a minute apart and a minute long for eight straight hours. Um, so that one I have bragging rights on the other two. I don't, um, you have bragging rights on the third. Well, yeah, not, (laughs) we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. I don't know if I have actually bragging rights, but so I, I, I plan on having an actual birth with her and with all of them because, um, I'm, I had a really traumatic experience when I was a kid, uh, seeing my mom have, um, have a spinal tap. Mm. Um, my mom was the strongest person I've ever known in my entire life. Like she literally, I, I saw her take down a mugger once who was twice her size. She was a bad yada yada. <laughs> and, um, and she, I think one of the only times I ever really saw her cry from pain was this, was this, uh, spinal tap. And so I watched a baby center video just on my phone one night about this is what a, this is what an epidural looks like. And, and it is different from a spinal tap. And I totally recognize that, but seeing the needle go into the back, I had a panic attack that lasted probably three hours. I've never seen it. Like, I don't even know what it looks like. Yeah. So, and it's funny, like when I was in labor with my first, um, I, you kind of like go crazy when you're in labor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so there was, I was doing different positions, whatever. And they decided that, um, that it would be beneficial for me to try to position myself in a way that like I was kneeling on the bed with, um, like hugging the back of the bed basically. And Mm -hmm. they had, had the bed upright. And so I was hugging the back of the bed and, um, and I decided in my like momentary insanity that they did that so that my back was exposed, that they could give me an epidural (laughs) because they, and like, you're a crazy person. And so I'm hugging the back of the bed and I'm, I'm in transition and I, which is like the The worst, most powerful, awful part of labor, which you think you're going to die. And I became convinced that they were about to give me an epidural, but I was in so much pain that I couldn't move. And so I turned around and I just started screaming like a mad woman, do not give me a shot. Do not come near me with your shot. If you try to give me an epidural, I will kill you. I will literally murder you. And the nurses were like, we've literally never heard a woman say that before. We've never heard a woman. Most of them are like, give me the drugs. They're like every other woman in transition in our entire careers has never said no drugs. They have begged for them if they mention them, but they've never screamed at us to get away from them 
if we have like nobody had a shot like there was nothing going on but oh, that was man. sort of the, the level of my paranoia and fear of of an epidural that even in transition my biggest fear was that shot and I, oh, I genuinely yeah. thought I was going to die and I still preferred that do you really <laughs> like in your mind are you like I like, I don't know. What are you thinking with that pain? Like that transition pain, like outside of like not wanting the epidural, like what else is going through your mind? I mean, I'm genuinely convinced that I'm about to die. That's crazy. Uh -huh. Oh my gosh. I, so like, I think it was, I don't remember which kid it was. If it was my first or my second, I think it might've been my second. Um, I just like started like saying goodbye to my husband. Stop. <laughs> and I was like, He's like Bethany, I'm come on. Really, I was like, and I was like tearing up. I'm like, I've really enjoyed being married to you. <laughs> You're such a good man. And like the nurses that time were like, we've also never heard a woman like tearfully tell their husband they love him in this moment. <laughs> and that I'm is, like, you, yeah. And yeah. in that in that moment, I thought I was going to die, and so I was like saying my goodbyes to my husband. <laughs> well, and then like, the baby came out. Let's, and then I, was, um, like, I know that you probably are sick of talking about this, but um, but you know your it's third kid story. was born in a car, um, yeah. and that kind of will go down in the history books. I don't know that I'll ever meet anyone else that's had that experience. So, um, in the very shortest way possible, how did that happen? So it happened because I never know when I'm in labor. Mm. And that is true for the false alarms and it's true for the real, real thing. Um, so I had been having contractions. I, I went to the hospital twice the day before thinking I was in labor and I wasn't. Okay. And so they, they sent me home and they were like, really, honestly, don't come back until your water breaks because he's, he's really high and like you're a little bit dilated, but he's really high. The only thing holding him that high is your water. And once your water breaks, he's going to rock it out. So the second your water breaks, come here. And so I said, okay. So I was having contractions all night. They weren't that bad. So um, I was sleeping through most of them. And then I took a shower and then they completely stopped. And so I was like, all right, I want to kill myself. <laughs> it keeps, <laughs> this keeps on happening. And so I get in bed and I'm so tired because this has happened several nights in a row now where I've been up all night with contractions and then they stop at dawn that I just like laid a towel down on my bed and just like fell asleep on top of the towel naked. <laughs> and I was like, I can't, I'm done. You do what you gotta do. Yeah. I was so tired. This was like several days in a row of laboring all night basically. And so I wake up probably 20 minutes later and my water is breaking across my bed. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God. So I jump up, I yell at my husband and he like takes too long to get out of bed. I'm still angry. At about least it. he was there though. Right? Yeah. Thank God. And so he eventually gets out of bed and I'm standing in the shower, like buck naked. My water is like coming out. And I was like, you need to get a dress on me. Don't even worry about underwear. <laughs> like, we just no gotta point. get out the door. Yep. Yeah. And so we call the babysitter. The babysitter comes. And as I'm walking past her to go down the stairs to leave our house, I look at her and I was like, I have this effing baby on the side of the road. And that was the last that I saw. Of my and did you really think that at that point? I, I, yeah, I did. I like, I, I didn't, I didn't think. I wasn't really thinking. Like I was basically already in transition. Oh. Um, I wasn't like clear minded, but I couldn't anticipate holding it in for another forty minutes, which is how far away the hospital was. Oh my gosh, forty minutes! That's so far. Yeah. So unfortunately where we were living in New Jersey, the two local hospitals were not awesome. 
And the only hospital that had midwives that had privileges was in Princeton, 40 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So we got in the car, we got in Seth's car cause I didn't want to ruin my car with like my leaking water on my seat. Cause it was a lease. <laughs> so his car was so a you were thinking somewhat clearly. Yeah. I was, his car is a junker. So let's get in that one. So we got in his junker and uh, we started driving and Seth is to a fault uh, too nice. And it's my biggest frustration with him in the course of our entire marriage, he's always just been too nice to people who do not deserve it. And so he, we were driving and he was like waiting to make a left turn off our street. I'm like, just cut them off. This is the moment in every movie where the guy just cuts them (laughs) off, cut them off. And he was like, I really don't need backseat driving right now. I'm like, I really need you to just fricking drive. And so we're fighting. And then he's like, okay, this is not, not conducive to this drive if we're going to do this for another 40 minutes. So he starts making jokes. I want to kill him even more. Finally, we get on the highway and uh, my doula, I had texted my doula and her assistant called me because my doula was in with another client at a birth. And so the assistant heard me (laughs) and was like, um, okay, I think you should put your legs up on the dashboard <laughs> and try to lay down and let like gravity help you keep that baby in a little bit because uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like you might be pushing. Um, and I was like, I just like just a little bit just because it relieves the pressure. And she's like, don't do it. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> so I hung up with her. I put my legs up. And it's like, I compare it to having diarrhea when you have food poisoning. Uh-huh. Like, like you can't stop it. Yeah, technically you're pushing it out. But like, if someone tells you not to poop, if there's no toilet, like you figure it out. Yeah, it gets, <laughs> like you can't. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So after, after a while, and I'm like looking at my ways, because I, I had had enough of like, wherewithal to put the hospital into ways. Because um, Seth on a previous run the day before had overshot the hospital. And I was like, that's the last thing we need. Like, even though it's a straight shot, like I'm making this really dummy proof. I'm going to put it into ways. And so I put it into ways and it was rush hour in the morning on a Friday morning. And I saw, um, on the GPS on ways, the time sort of ticking up a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) of like, it, you'll be there at 9.42. Now you'll be there at 9.44. Now at 9.47. And when I saw the time ticking up and it was still like 20 minutes away, I was like, I can't, I can't. And so I'm just going to push just a little bit just to relieve this pressure or I'm going to die. And I pushed just a little bit and Seth heard the sound of me pushing and was like, please stop, please stop, Aww. stop that, stop, please. And I was like, just doing it a little bit just to get a little bit of the push out, just to baby push. I just, that's just, I can't, I just can't even imagine. The baby push, I reached down under my dress and I was like, I feel hair that's not mine. So, Um, so did he then pull off? (laughs) Yeah. So he was in the left at that point and I was like, I feel hair that that, that's not mine. And he was like, alrighty then. And he put his blinker on and he like, was more aggressive this time, like cut people off and got off the road and pulled into, and this is another, there's like several fights that we have about this birth. And one of them was he pulled into a gravel parking lot of an auto body shop and the gravel, when we pulled in dust was flying everywhere. There was a McDonald's next door. And I'm like, why didn't you park in the McDonald's where there was like pavement and 
in his defense, and I think it's a valid defense, he says it's because he knew I wouldn't want bystanders. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally fair. Totally, totally fair. It was a judgment call. He probably made the right one. But at the mm-hmm. moment, I was really annoyed because yeah. I was like, there's some dust everywhere. And so he parks, he runs around, and I'm screaming, like, call 911, and he's already on the phone. And he's, like, telling them where we are, and he comes around to my, to the passenger side, and he opens the door, and by that point, his head is already out. And he's, like, asking what to do, and the 911 operator has no idea. And she's freaking out. And so he's, like, calming her down on the phone, and I was like, just put the phone down. If she can't She's not help- helping. Yeah. If she can't help you, don't talk to her. She's fine. Like, she's not the one that needs your attention right now. On me. Thank you. And he's like joking, whatever. And I'm like ready to kill everyone. And so he eventually puts the phone down and is like, this is where we are. Come. We'll see people whenever we see people. And so he puts the phone down and he like puts his hands out and basically does nothing. Like I, I pull the baby out. His head came out in like, his head was already out by the time we were on the side of the road. And then I like eased his shoulders out, like kind of over my pregnant belly. And then, um, and then he just came right out. Like it was really fast and easy. And I just put him right on my chest Mm -hmm. and it was the scariest moment of my life because he came out purple because of the speed of his birth. Mm -hmm. But when you ha- like put a baby on your chest on the side of the road that's purple and not breathing and not moving, mm. it's not. It's no. like a really terrifying moment. Um, and so I like sort of had this. I feel like it was like divine intervention. Honestly, um, one of my friends had an accidental home birth. Um, she delivered her baby in her toilet, mm-hmm. and her husband picked the baby out. And her nine one one operator was not awful. And knew what to say and knew how to what to do. And her nine one operator said to gently massage the baby's back to try to stimulate it awake, basically to to just like like, hey, you're outside now. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, start breathing. And so I sort of had that premonition. I was like, and so that's what I started doing. I started rubbing his back pretty vigorously, and his lips turned pink, and he started opening them just ever so slightly. And I was like, okay, he's alive. Like, we're in a we're in a good spot. We're okay. And I was like, we have to put something on him. Like there's dust everywhere. (laughs) This is disgusting. Like we have to put something on him. And I said like, what do you have in the car, Seth? And he was like, I can check my gym bag. And I'm like, that's okay. (laughs) Great. So he goes in his trunk and he checks his gym bag and he was like, I'm pretty sure this sweatshirt is clean. And I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take that pretty sure clean sweatshirt. And so it was a ranger sweater, which I loved and went missing. I'm sure it was thrown away by the, by some EMS person or something. Uh-huh. But um, but we put this ranger sweater on him, and he was like, "It's the playoffs. It'll be good luck for the playoffs." And I was <laughs> like, "Again, I want to murder you. Like, stop being so jovial right now." What time of year was this? I thank God it was late April. Oh yeah, so I was gonna say, thank goodness it wasn't winter. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a tiny there was a tiny nip in the air, but it wasn't so bad. Um, but. I just was like that in that mom instinct. Like I, I can't like, we have to wrap him up. Like he's soaking wet. Mm-hmm. He's a new baby. Like we have to wrap him. And so, um, and so by the time, so the cops got there first and they sort of like ambled up nervously and then they, <laughs> they walked up and I was like, Hey, we don't, 
you know, we'll, we'll need you, but you know, like we don't need you to do anything. And they were like, okay, great. They're like, we'll leave you alone. Stand here then. <laughs> and then you could tell they were really relieved and they took some pictures for us. And, and then like two minutes later, the, the ambulances pulled up and then they, they actually like took the baby and I, that I had already delivered the placenta. And so, um, they cut the cord for us and, and gave him back to me. And then, um, we all went to the hospital in like a caravan, basically the, there was a cop car, then the ambulance with me and the baby in it. And then Seth's car and then another cop car behind us. And so we, we drove on the shoulder for the next 20 minutes until we got to the hospital. And then did you guys stay there for a couple of days or were you just there for a little bit? I was just there for a night. I wanted to leave. I, I didn't want to stay overnight because the whole point of having hospital birth to me was to like have someone there for the birth. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't really, um, I don't really understand why I need to stay here. Um, but they, uh, threatened me <laughs> with, uh, if I tried to leave, uh, calling CPS. What? <laughs> yeah. That's like, insane. Well, I always did think it was weird too. Yeah. Cause like I, you know, when I had my babies, you stay two nights and by the last day, I'm just like, why am I still here? Like I yeah, like yeah, to leave I now. Saw, I've always, done. I've stayed 24 hours. And with this one, I didn't even want to do that. Like I just wanted to leave and they wouldn't let me. And like the infuriating part was then I had to pay for the, the stay oh. that they made me stay yeah. for. Um, that birth cost a lot of money. Because um, it was like the ambulance, the ER, oh, yeah. it was ridiculous. That's a whole other story. But um, so, yeah, so I had to stay 24 hours, which I was really pissed about. Um, and so this time I'm, I'm just having home birth and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not leaving my house. I'm done. Yeah. You don't, you don't have to worry about the car this time because you're just yeah. going to chill at your house. So you'll be perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I, I don't think I've heard it in full before, but um, reliving it. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I don't relive it. <laughs> um, but to, to get back to your writing career a little bit, um, you have been, you know, writing, you, you do op-ed writing and you've been doing that for about what, five or six years now yeah. Um, yeah, on the regular. And, you know, you've been published in a quite a wide variety of places and you write about some really personal things. I know that you, both of your parents died when you were pretty young and you've, um, talked about some of that in your writing. Um, how do you decide what to write about? How do you find inspiration? And then how are you able to kind of find the right kind of pitch um, to get places to publish it um, for you? So I have sort of a, I'll, I'll answer the last sort of question first. I have a sort of like a roster of places that I have connections to editors where it's, it's easier um, to just sort of reach out and, and think like, this, this is like New York times worthy versus like, this is like not, um, this, this piece would be good for like the Washington post because it's more of a local story. For example, like I wrote, I wrote about Ralph Northam for the Washington post because it was more of a local story because it's Virginia. Um, so, um, and also like depending on the audience too, like there's some things that, um, I think will be more received, more well-received by a conservative versus liberal audience. And there's also things that like, I think that people in, that read the Washington Post need to read this because this is not a take that they often hear. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll sort of reach out to editors and like the number of times where like 
they've never replied or they turn me down is like 15 million times more than the places I've been like the number of times I've been published. And you just sort of have to like be okay with being ignored and being okay with being told no. Um, and also then being like really easy to work with, like responding to people quickly Mm -hmm. and, um, being really chill about edits. Um, as long as they don't sort of change the, the crux of what you're saying. Um, and, uh, yeah, and just being chill in general. Do you do you pitch an idea first or send a fully written piece? Oh, always pitch an idea. You never, okay. ever, ever, ever write a piece before. Um, before Because the, the editor might be like, I like this component, but I don't love this part. Can you make it this? And every editor I've ever spoken to has always said, send me a pitch first. Mm, okay. um, it's a lot easier to change pitch than it is to change a piece. Mm, um, and true. one of... One of my favorite editors to follow on this front is um, the Washington Post's Alyssa Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. We actually first met through you. Oh, really? Yeah, years ago. And I think she was at Think Progress then. Yeah, she, no, she I did. had her as a speaker at an event yeah. I was helping organize. Yeah, and I was the moderator at, at, on that panel. Oh. Um, and so I first met her there. And so she's now an editor at the Washington Post. And she shares a lot of tips for writers that might want to pitch her. And oh, I that's interesting. Them, okay. Yeah. I found them to be really, really helpful. She's normally their culture writer, but I think since having a baby, she shifted a little bit more into editing more frequently for their op-ed pages. Um, and she always shares great, helpful tidbits. So I really recommend following her. Um, Okay, well, you know I'm going to do that because you know yeah. how I am. You know I'm always yeah. trying to get published. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of the things that you write about, so you have gotten a lot of – you get a lot of hate mail, I'm sure. Um, yes. You, get a, <laughs> you have had, like, really horrific things said to you and your husband. I mean, it's pretty crazy. How do you deal with that? Um, I, I don't really care what – random people on the internet say do you ever hear There's, have anyone that actually has legitimacy say anything really bad oh yeah for sure yeah um but I just like I think it makes it a little bit easier in that we are both in this industry and so we can sort of talk to each other about it um which is nice um but I just I I think I have a, a thicker skin than Seth in part because I don't live on Twitter the same way he lives on Twitter because he's sitting at a desk all day. I check in over the course of the day. He is on it all day. Um, mm, but I yeah. just like, don't, I don't care. I've been a teenage girl before I've played these games and like, I don't, I don't care what these people think of me. Like the people that matter don't, there's this great, like Dr. Seuss saying that I love, like those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. I love that thing. Yes. It's, it's just like, it fits in this era of like outrage and Twitter, whatever. And it's just like, you know what? Outrage cycle lasts for a day. And it's funny. Like people will reach out to me, like I'm thinking about you. I just want you to know that I support you. And I'm like, what happened? Yeah. yeah. You you know, it's great. It's like you, you've got to have somewhat of a thick skin if you're going to do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so this happened to me recently and someone's like, Oh, you're getting like really buried about that tweet and or that piece or whatever. I don't remember what it was about. And I was like, Oh really? Oh, that's funny. And they were like, wait, you haven't seen it. And I'm like, no, I haven't been on Twitter in like six hours. And they're like, Oh yeah. You, (laughs) you can't care that much. You'll get lost (laughs) in it. Um, the funniest thing 
I don't know, funny is the right word, but what I see from you is people complaining about your cussing on Twitter, oh um, which, nuts. you know, you're, Bethany sounds super sweet right now, guys, but <laughs> I, it's been a, it's been a struggle to keep it in. Well, and you. you, you have said that most of the time, the people that like complain about your, your language are older men, right? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, excuse me, like, who are you to police my language? Like, what is that I, all about? It's so crazy. I mean, I think it's in part because my audience is generally more conservative than liberal. And so it, there's like this sort of, I mean, especially because I'm like a homeschool mom, a stay-at-home mom. And people are like, I can't believe a, a conservative mother would talk this way. I'm like, part of my brand, if you want to call it that, <laughs> is that... I am not a traditional conservative mom and you should want more of me. Right. And, um, and there's, there's people who come to conservatism from a lot of different places in their life. They didn't all grow up watching like wearing Brooks brothers and going to the Reagan ranch for an internship (laughs) when they were 17. And like, it's, it's just a very stereotypical pipeline into the conservative movement. And I didn't take that pipeline. My, my father was a was a truck driver. My mom was a social worker until she became disabled. And um, all of these sort of life experiences made me into a conservative. And part of my life is that my dad was a truck driver. And I grew up on Long Island. And this way of talking was, I mean, from both of my parents was common. My parents both had like crazy mouths. And this is just like, this is how I talk and I'm, I hold it in as much as I can in person, but, um, but this is how I talk and my kids are used to it and my kids know all the words and employ them at the perfect times. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course. And I'm like so proud of them when they do it. And they, they like, they know it's like the word that they have to like really hold in. But then when something happens, like my, my, my kid will be like, ah, yes. S and I'm like, yes, that is the proper use of that word. When you dropped <laughs> your toy that you love and you broke it, like, yes. Does your husband was- also have a potty mouth? Not at all. No, at all. no, no. That's so he funny. when he when he breaks it out, it's like, what? Did <laughs> like, you say that? Serious. <gasps> um, he's he's chill about the fact that like our kids hear it all the time and have repeated things, and he's just like, well. One of the parenting decisions that I wouldn't make, but I'm yes. not home all day like you are. So just going to let that one go. Well, <laughs> speaking of, I was going to say, speaking of you being home all day, you're stay at home mom. You got these kids. You're, are you homeschooling? Yeah. You are homeschooling. Um, and yet you do a lot of writing. You're kind of infamous for being known as the girl who writes op-eds on her phone. Um, yes. But I've also heard you say that you, you know, you exchange other things in order to have time or make time to do this work. So what are some of the things that you kind of give up and what are the things that you prioritize in your life? So I've shifted a little bit since we moved here um, because I felt like the constant churning out op-ed reactionary pieces is is an unhealthy part of our culture and so I've I've tried to hold back on that somewhat mm-hmm. okay um and so my my general thing is I write about three pieces a week for ricochet which that's where I'm an editor and that's that's the majority of my time I edit and I write about three pieces a week for them um and then I try to write like one sort of big piece a week that I I will that I have pitched 
Um, so I think like, I think last week it was, God, I don't even remember. I think it was the New York post last week. Um, and so I'm always sort of pitching one big piece a week. And so this week I'm working on something for the Jewish telegraph agency that is turning into a behemoth. And I don't know if I'm going to finish it this week, actually. So do you, let me ask you this, when you have a pitch, like you have the pitch idea, um, do you kind of just, you have like some outlets in mind and you know, what's really frustrating as an op-ed writer, and I'm sure you're well aware of this frustration is when you send it to someone and maybe someone doesn't get back to you fast enough and you're trying to yeah. figure out where it can go and you, but you can't write it for, you know, you can't, it's just, it's just a very frustrating time constraint, um, mm-hmm. because of the way op-ed writing works. So, yeah. um, what's your kind of strategy on that? So I generally, so I'm married to an editor and so I sort of hear his t- side of it a lot. Um, I will pitch someone if I don't hear back in a couple hours, I'll DM them. And, uh, if it's an idea that I'm really married to doing, uh, and I will check in once or twice. And then that, that last check in, I'll say like, um, I'm going to move on. Uh, it seems like you're not interested and sort of give a, an hour before I do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll pitch to another editor. Same thing. At that point, if two editors say no, then it's not me. It's, it's not them. It's me. Okay. <laughs> like, so that's maybe what, there's something okay, you wrong. Take that. Got it. Um, but if, if it's an idea that like, I, I still want to just get it out there and, and it, maybe it's not worth like a long thought out 800 to a thousand word piece. I can, I can, the, the nice thing is I can just throw it up on Ricochet and it's a nice outlet for sort of quick things. Um, and then that will be like sort of one of my one, one of three items. Um, and, um, and so that's sort of an outlet for me, uh, that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Um, cause nice. I can still get it out there. Um, and, um, and then there's other things that like my, my, my posts on Ricochet are, are shorter. And so if there's things that are going on in the world that I have thoughts on, but I don't have like a thousand words of thoughts mm-hmm. <laughs> or if I do have a thousand words of thoughts, but I still don't think that it's a newspaper column. Like it's, it's a blog post. I'll just put it on Ricochet cause that's where those things belong in my life. Um, and so what I pitch to people is really like an idea that I can flesh out into 800 to a thousand words that, uh, is more of a narrative and less of like me quoting 300 words of this and 300 words of that. Like it's a real narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it's, um, it's, I, I, I try to, to keep my pitches to like one a week of mm-hmm. like a longer thing. Um, because I have a regular gig with Ricochet. Yeah. And I don't, did we ever, sorry, did you, did you ever answer the question about, um, about prioritizing and what you give up? And Oh, no, I didn't. I don't know how we got um, off that somehow. <laughs> no, so, um, I, I, I don't have as much downtime as I would like. Um, and I've tried to, I've tried to make myself take more of it and write less, um, and read more. Um, so the, the lack of downtime is huge. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm on my phone too much. I would like to be on my phone less. Yeah. Um, how much sleep do you get? I mean, not enough, but that is in part because 
um, because I'm pregnant and I'm miserable. Um, but I used, I used to get less, but I was more productive with the less, mm-hmm. um, in the last, like probably two months it's with the like weight that I'm carrying, it's become like really tiring to walk around. And so I'm fried at the end of the day in a way that I wasn't two months ago, because it's just like really hard to carry around like 20 pounds on my front. Oh yeah. And yeah. it's, it's physically exhausting. And so by the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know how much I can think <laughs> anymore. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to sort of get more work done in the middle of the day um, while my kids are napping or while my youngest is napping, which is how I'm able to record this podcast right now. I was going to say, I'm, um, I'm taking up your valuable free time right now. No, no, it's fine. I, I plan my day differently because of this. Um, and then uh, instead of doing homeschool stuff with my kids during that nap hour, um, I've been doing it more in the morning um, so that, I, uh, I can use my nap hour for work instead of homeschooling, which is what I had been doing. Okay. Well, let me ask you a little bit of a serious question. Um, I did mention your parents earlier and, you know, you've talked about that a little bit and I was just curious how going through a situation where you lose your parents, both, um, when you were a teenager, how that kind of shaped the rest of your life and your perspective on things. So it shaped everything. I like, I sort of, I mean, especially with my mother's death, who she died when I was 16 and my dad when I was 19. Um, I sort of see it as like Bethany before and Bethany after, and they were completely different people, like night and day different people. Um, I mean, from a sort of political perspective, the experiences that happened afterwards shaped my politics and, um, and it shaped my parenting in a lot of ways. Um, I, my mom was a very, uh, was a really tough person. I mentioned that earlier. Um, and she raised me to be really tough and there was no whining. There was no crying. Um, there was no, I can't. Um, it was, I was, I was prepared from a very young age to take on more responsibility than other kids my age. Um, and that has shifted into my own parenting. So for example, I was at a, uh, I was at a restaurant with my daughter. She was five and a half. Um, and a little bit shy, but she's, she's outgoing, but she can be shy with, with strangers. And, and we were sitting there and there were, there had been a long line to get, to get lunch. And I was sitting there with the boys and she, I had gotten like a small cup of, of macaroni and cheese and she wanted more macaroni and cheese. And I was like, not getting back in that line. <laughs> like you ordered your food. This is it. Like, I don't care that you don't like the sandwich. Like if you want more macaroni and cheese, you can get back in line. Here's my credit card. You can stand there for 15 minutes. You can order it. You can pay for it. And then you can come back and you can eat it. That is the only way you're getting more macaroni and cheese because I'm not getting up and waiting in that line again, especially with your brothers who are sitting here eating. And so I sent my five-year-old <laughs> into, into this line and she stood there for 15 minutes and just stood in line like a person. Like and, a person. <laughs> like a person. And she she waited until... She got to the the person who was taking orders and said, I'd like one large cup of macaroni and cheese. And then they walked it to the register and she handed them my credit card and, uh, and they handed it back to her with her macaroni and cheese. And she walked over to me and she was beaming. She was so proud of herself. <laughs> and th- she's still talking about it. And she saved the receipt because it was like such a special thing. And that's the kind of stuff that I do. Like, if you want that, then you can get that. I'm, yeah. I'm not, 
and that's that's also like people ask me how I how I manage three such young children and it's because even my two-year-old I say like go get it that's yeah. where it is go get it yeah I think I'm I'm a kind of aligned with you on that I'm reading this book you may have heard of it it's called there's no such thing as bad weather and it's kind of in the same vein as the free range parenting movement type of thing yeah. and um it's just you know about self-sufficiency and not being kind of a helicopter parent and I definitely feel like I've just naturally fallen into that camp and I don't know why or how well I guess it's just because my parents weren't I guess that's why because you yeah. learn it from your parents and um and so I'm just I'm totally pro I'm with you on that that's awesome yeah, and and I've I've seen like how it sort of makes my kids more. Um, th- they have such a pride in when they accomplish something, and um, and it just makes my life easier. And there's there's no real downside to making your kids more self sufficient. Yeah, and in my case, like my mom teaching me, like I was in charge of all of our household bills when I turned like 15 or so. That is not normal. (laughs) No, no, it's not. And so like I had the, I had the checkbook and like a card, a a, a bill would come in for the electric bill and I would have to put the, I would have to write it in the checkbook and deduct it from our household balance, write the check. My mom would sign it. I, I would be in charge of putting in the envelope, sealing it and putting a stamp on it. And, and then it would go into the mail and like, that was my, that was my job. The only thing my mom ever did was, was sign the check and cut. That was when I was 15. And then fast forward to when I'm 18, my mom had been dead for a year and a half. I lived on my own. I lived in a studio apartment in the South Bronx and I had to pay my electric bill and I had to pay my cable bill and I had to know how to do that. Were you working or were you in school? I was doing both. I was, I was working full time and I was in school full time. Oh, wow. It was awful. That sounds awful. (laughs) What were you doing for a job? Um, One of my high school friends, her mom was uh, extremely wealthy and decided she needed a personal assistant. Oh, now there's the dream. (laughs) So she lived on the Upper West Side. And part of like my assistant duties, there were some cool parts. There were not cool parts. She was an event planner. And so some of the cool parts was helping her doing event planning at the UN. That was a really cool thing. Yeah. One of the not cool things was like she was going through uh, what ended up being a divorce. It was mm-hmm. a bad patch in her marriage that ended up being a divorce. And she, as like therapy, would go shopping and she would buy thousands of dollars of shoes and then regret it the next day. <laughs> and I would then go return all of her shoes. And so in a day, I could either be like helping plan an event for Jane Goodall at the UN, or I could be returning six different pairs of shoes to three different stores. That's like, you know, that's like a book or like you, you can just see it in a movie or it's something. Ridiculous. Yeah. So she paid me very generously because she knew my situation. And, um, and that was all of my, my, so my dad, um, my dad per my parents' divorce agreement had to pay child support. And so that child support payment, almost exactly equaled my rent. Mm. And so he just, he made up that literally it was $20 difference and just paid my rent. Um, and then, but everything else, my cable, my electric, my food, everything else I had to pay for. And so that was, that was that job. Yeah. Um, and so, and there were times where I literally had a dollar in my wallet 
and I stole boxes of pasta from my boss because she worked from home and I would just like take a box of pasta out of her pantry and I felt weird and I didn't know what to say and I knew that she wouldn't notice and it was nothing to her because she would spend thousands of dollars on shoes in a given day. Uh, but I was and she probably would have given it to you. Yeah, she totally would have. And I just felt really weird asking for, so I just yeah. took the box yeah. called it a day. Um, but there were definitely times where I, I lifted a box of spaghetti. Yeah. Um, it's I'm, not the worst yeah. thing in the world. No, I'm not really sorry about it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so my mom making me do our bills when I was 15, when I was, you know, 18, and doing it myself, I knew how to do it because my mom had made me. And are you good with money now? No. No. I mean, like, yes and no. I mean, like, I'm as good as we can be on with the circumstances that we have. But it's yeah. it's still, like, you know, like, we have three kids. They're all young. We you, have do one. Do you do coupons? No, because they don't really. It's the, so hard the, if you're going to do time, it for it mattering. We, I, go to, I go to Aldi. Yeah. That's, like, that's, that's what I hear money. is the way to go. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we don't make a ton of money. (laughs) My husband is an editor. I'm a part-time freelance writer. We live in an expensive area. We have three children and stuff piles up. Some, some days are better than other days. And you just sort of, it's a struggle, but it's, uh, it's a happy struggle. Are you planning on homeschooling for a long time? I don't know. Um, I, I, I would like to homeschool through elementary school with all my kids and then sort of leave it up to them. Um, I, we can't afford private school, which is what most Jews do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not, it, it's not a, it's not a good enough education for the cost and it's a cost that we can't afford anyway. Um, and I can do it better to be totally frank. Mm-hmm. Um, once we hit middle school, it'll be a conversation with every kid and every kid can make up their own minds and, We'll decide. Um, are, do you want to do day school in the Jewish world? Do you want to do public school? Are the public schools good enough for that to be an option? Are the middle schools in the Jewish realm good enough for that to be an option? We'll just sort of, we'll have to decide and, and make a judgment call. But that's a long time away. And so we're sort of just focusing on elementary school for now. Okay, Bethany. Well, I know we need to wrap up. So let me ask you, I don't know if you're a reader and you don't probably have a lot of time, but are you a reader and have you read anything lately? I am actually. I've become a reader this year. That was my New Year's resolution. Okay, cool. Um, So I'm reading a great biography right now about Grant. Mm -hmm. Um, That was fantastic. That is fantastic. I'm like 300 pages in and it's like a thousand pages or something. (laughs) Um, So it's by Ron Chernow and I'm really enjoying it. I just spe- speed read The Chosen by Chaim Poetak, which... Oh, that's uh, an old, read, the old book? Yeah, yeah. It's, I read it in high school, but I was, I'm in a, a, a mom, a homeschool mom uh, book club. That's fine. And it was, yeah, and it was on the list, and I was like, oh, I'm actually going to go to book club and read that again, because I haven't read it in so long, and I really enjoyed it. I finished it in, like, two days. Um, and so that's been fun. Um other good books have I read lately? Um, Neuro Tribes is the book that I always recommend. Oh, okay. uh, it's uh, by a guy named Steve Silberman. Um, and it's about the history of autism and, uh, and autism in general. And it's a fascinating read. And uh, he does such a good job because he, he handles 
the science of it and the history of it and uh, the sociology of it. And um, it's a really interesting book because autism is, is so much in the news all the yeah. time. That's yeah. a good sort of 101 book about sort of the history and, um, and, and what that has looked like. And you, um, you have a podcast too. You have Lady Brains. Yeah. And theoretically, I have one with my husband. Yeah, I just, well, I was just looking it up because I was like, maybe I'll listen to, like, because I've listened to it before, but not for a long time. And I was like, oh, they haven't, they haven't had yep, an episode since January. That's, that's part of the, we're like, I'm so tired that I'm like, that's sort of one of the things that has gone by the wayside. That's, that's hard. But what I've realized about since getting into podcasting is that, like, you do get ideas where you're like, well, this could be another podcast. It, it's very yep. hard not to just kind of want to do spinoffs. And I've had to be like, Erica you don't even have time to do this one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but so this podcast, do you have any that you like to listen to? So, um, <laughs> sad, but most of the podcasts that I listen to, so I listen to Ben Shapiro just to get like every single day, a news hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I listen to Ben, but the other podcasts that I listen to are kid podcasts. Yeah. What are the kid ones? Cause podcasts. all I've had, all I've heard is, um, story pirates. Oh, so we love Story Pirates. Circle Round um, mm-hmm. is another amazing one. And um, and my our other favorite in the house is Wow in the World. Okay, so, I'm going to check those out. Wow in the World is a science one. And Story Pir- and um, Circle Round is a stories podcast. And they're both produced by NPR. And uh, so my daughter knows NPR sort of well because of that, because she hears NPR every single day, several times a day. And when we drive by their studio in DC, she's like, Oh my God, that's NPR. <laughs> and I, I had, I was recently on, uh, on NPR on, uh, on one of their shows and the producer called me and it goes on my Bluetooth. And so it's, it's in the car. And my daughter heard that it was a producer from NPR and she was like, wait a second. And she never interrupts work calls. She knows better, but she heard that I'm a producer with NPR. And she's like, you work for NPR. <laughs> I was like, and I, I like said her name. Like, I don't, I don't see my kids' names in public, but I like said her name. I'm like, honey, like, and she said, no, 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 no. Wow in the world needs to answer my call. Cause she's been, she's been leaving them voicemails trying to get on the podcast. There's a, a portion at the end of the show where kids say they're wow, like the science facts that wows them. And so she's called a dozen times with her. Wow. And so she's yelling from the backseat, like, tell them to put my wow on the show. <laughs> the FDR producer, who's a political producer, is like, what is she saying? And I explain it. And she's like, oh, yeah, I think, is that is that Guy Raz's show? Because um, he does things besides this kid's podcast for NPR. Oh, yeah, I listened to his and other one. So, yeah, and so my daughter, when she heard that this NPR producer knew Guy Raz, lost it. And just start screaming, Guy Ross, say hi to Guy Ross. And, and finally, it was like the most unprofessional call ever because I never speak to this woman. Um, and my daughter's like flipping out in the background and she's like, I can't really hear you anymore. Um, I'm just going to email you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so if she, she could pass along the message and the uh, podcast, kids podcast people will be excited. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's the most popular kids podcast in the country. Like they're, we, we went, they had a live show in DC and it was sold out and it was like oh, in wow. a theater. It was well, like in like a real like theater. I need to do that. Although I have to say whenever I put on a podcast for my son, 
he's always like, let me see mommy. I'm like, there's no, it's just for your ears. He doesn't understand like <laughs> that you can't see anything. Right. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's part of like the, the screen time generation. Like my, it, it took a while to get used to that. We, it helps. Um, we have a, a really nice speaker and that made the, the difference when we started. That's what I should do is I should put it, we have a nice speaker too. And like, I should just put it on that and then he'll, he'll yeah. get it. Cause when it's connected to your phone, they're not going to get no. it. No. And um, they can't really hear it clearly enough. Um, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to let you go because I know you got a lot to do. Um, but thank you for, I'm glad we finally got this together. I yeah, know I talked you. to you, you were one of the first people I talked to about the podcast way back before I even recorded any episodes. So, um, I'm, so I'm glad, glad that, that we got to have this conversation and I'm hopefully, oh, I'll be in DC soon. So maybe I'll Great. get to see you in person. Well, if you weren't worried about having your baby in a car, maybe you are now, but luckily it turned out okay. And I just thank Bethany so much for sharing that story with my listeners. And if you're still listening, I'm so glad that you are this dedicated that you're listening to the end of the podcast. And I'll just say, hey, you got a minute, head over to iTunes, leave me a rating and review. It literally can take less than one minute, but it means so much. I appreciate everyone who has done so. Um, and want to just keep growing the podcast, getting it out there and doing what I can to share these great stories of hope, inspiration and encouragement. Have a great one. I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.